Okay, Andy has been a close friend since we met in Portugal uh, three, maybe four years ago. And I describe her as one of the most curious humans that I know. And she also finds it difficult to stick to doing just one thing and has a pretty wide range of side hustles and hobbies. And we've had so many fascinating conversations over the years that I kind of wish I'd recorded. So here we finally are recording one for the podcast. Welcome, Andy. Thanks for having me, Johnny. It's exciting <laughs> to finally get around to doing this. Yeah. <laughs> so let's begin the conversation the way that they usually start, which is by asking, were you exceptionally curious as a child? And if so, what were you curious about? I think so. I was also a fairly kind of shy kid. Um, so my curiosity was all about imagination and kind of exploring uh, kind of alternate worlds. So I spent a lot of time in books. Um, and so a lot of my curiosity was in that creating, creating space. Um, and I happen to be out in the woods right now and I can think of a lot of curiosity around just being out playing in nature as well. So I think there was constantly this drive to figure things out. Actually, when I think of my time up here, I remember kind of trying to piece together the way the world works. And one thing that kind of jumps out to me as I look at my window and look at the lake was when I realized that the stones on the shore were different colored depending on how much time they'd spent underwater. Um, and so little things like that of like observing the world and trying to figure out how it worked and how the people within it worked. So yeah, so that's kind of, I would say, I think my curiosity grew as I got older and I started to understand, or and actually I think it's probably I started to understand that I didn't understand the world the way others did. And so that's really what kind of drove me to ask questions and explore and kind of test some of those assumptions and thinking about what what the rules of the world were. Mm. 
did you have any favorite books or stories during that period that come to mind? Hmm. I really loved uh, Little House on the Prairie and uh, Anne of Green Gables. Those are my like two kind of like heroines from that phase. Most of the books were, actually there was this also, I don't remember the name of the book, but there was this series of books about like princesses and dragons that was also uh, a big hit. Um, but they tend to feature uh, strong female protagonists, I would say, was uh, the general genre <laughs> that most appealed. Not a huge surprise. <laughs> nice. Um, and why do you think that many of us tend to lose touch with that kind of innate sense of curiosity? And it sounds like from what you just shared that you felt like yours almost increased. Why do you think that might have been? And do you think there's anything different about you compared to the average person? Hmm. Why do I think we lose it? I think we get rewarded for expertise. Um, especially as we're going through school, we get rewarded for knowing the answer and not rewarded for asking the question. Um, and so kind of as our knowledge increases, um, what, what, we, what we start to learn is valuable starts to change um and for me my my curiosity kind of probably did sort of waves of uh, especially as a teenager really just not ascribing to the same set of of rules and um you know just kind of being really confused by how the world worked and probably i would say really strongly got caught up in that trap of um knowledge was where value was and so things like um creativity took a, a back seat for a long time and then it was probably in my mid-20s when it actually started to come back online in a conscious way i had always been um kind of gently bucking the system um in small ways so you know things like for going to our sort of high school prom I didn't have a date, and so everyone you know, assumes that I would go on my own. And I just called up the like one of the most handsome guys at the all boys school uh, down the way, and I said, "Hey, would you like to be my date?" Um, so just little things like that. But those weren't so much curiosity; those were I'm not going to do what you expect me to do kind of things. Another one was when I graduated university. Most people did sort of a uh, kind of go go abroad um, kind of trip or a work abroad kind of experience. Many people from Canada went down to Australia or New Zealand. That was pretty common. And I went and backpacked in Africa. And this was in 2007. So to give it context, like international text messaging wasn't th a thing. Uh, Skype hadn't been invented yet. Um, so um, my parents got random uh, emails every couple of weeks that said like I'm still alive and if the dial-up happened to go out um, while I was midway through the email and I got lost they, they would get not a nice like storytelling email kind of describing the last three weeks of adventure it probably actually said something pretty close to you I'm just still alive I lost my last email we'll write later um, so I would say it wasn't so much driven by curiosity but as um, 
I, or just like just not seeing not not willing to play by the rules and then curiosity started to spark as I realized that this was you know, like why why was I wanting to do things differently why wasn't I wanting to, to do those rules and I think there was always this innate sense of adventure which is probably where it most manifested and then I sort of in my professional career and being rewarded for knowledge and kind of in some ways rewarded for taking the safe path of like, you know, following the logic of if this, then that as if it were linear. Um, it was later in my twenties that I started to sort of really say like, what, what, what do I want to be about? Um, what are the things that really intrinsically motivate me and curiosity and adventure for me are really intertwined. And I'd say that's kind of what sparked. And as I've been, I, I reinvent my career probably every about every five years because when I get to the end of what feels like learning um, or the rapid like you know the Mount Everest ascent of learning, um, then I kind of get bored. And so that's another way that curiosity for me is shows up is in the learning curve. Um, so you know it's like how do I figure out how to do this um, if I've never done it before if it's an area that I'm I'm, I, I want to learn more about. So those would be sort of the ways that I think it shows up. But I think it's largely because we get rewarded for being safe and we may not have spaces where, um, where, where we're with communities who are also asking questions. Because really at the heart of it, for me, curiosity is about asking questions and, and wondering why. And if you've lost the, the ability to to wonder and to see awe and to not know, um, yeah, I think you've sort of dampened dampened that sense. And you even see it in conversations. How often are you in a conversation and if someone doesn't know anything about the topic, they kind of get gets a bit stilted as opposed to saying like, tell me more. It's such a like brilliant, you know, kind of inquisition, but we're kind of taught to have conversations about the things we know and we don't necessarily see the topics we don't know as this like this is a you know a new adult jungle gym of curiosity of for something that you can just kind of go for a deep dive in that you don't know anything about and that's cool mm. yeah i i love that and i haven't i haven't kind of explicitly thought about this before but that there is a real connection between adventure and curiosity and i think that my journey was also similar kind of going traveling around the world when I was 19. And, and I wonder if that experience almost increases our tolerance for uncertainty. And that then kind of extends itself into the rest of the rest of life where you're, you're okay with sitting in that ambiguity. And that, that isn't something that you suddenly need to escape because you have this kind of faith that things will resolve itself and that you don't need to know the answer like there and then. So yeah, that's, that's a really interesting... That a really interesting connection. I think that is really true and especially if you've had some of those early travel experiences because you're often doing it on a pretty tight budget which means you might mm -hmm. make some like questionable choices um, or you're making <laughs> penny pinching choices that lead you on adventures lead, lead that you otherwise stuff. wouldn't. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, versus and I think it, adventuring is very different than vacationing kind of travel so I think especially those early days of the budget travel and kind of exploration you realize how much you don't know about the world when you get outside your bubble and one of my favorite quotes is um 
everything works out in the end. If it hasn't worked out yet, it's not the end. And that's kind of my <laughs> motto of how I deal with ambiguity. Um, it's not to mm-hmm. say it's not going to be hard or you know a challenge or I'm not going to love every moment of it. But like things, mm. things work out and there's an other side that you get to. Um, and to have a little kind of faith that it, that, that will happen. Um, I think that mm-hmm. honors the experience of the, the, like the yucky, messy middle bit without being Pollyanna about it but has a sense of optimism. Yeah, definitely. And were there any, were there any kind of pivotal moments in your early 20s or your mid-20s that you felt like were big shifts in that direction? Or, or maybe when you felt like you, you built up sufficient confidence to really strike out on your own? Or, or maybe the, the desire that, that you just felt like you, you were kind of stagnating and that you'd stopped learning and that you needed to, to completely reinvent yourself then? Were there any moments that kind of stand out for you? There's a big one for me, uh, I guess, right before I turned 30, because uh, I finished my my graduate program fairly early on. Um, I was on sort of the straight and narrow. As I talk about that education piece, I think I had lost some of my own curiosity in that. It was like I wasn't being truly curious, like I was learning, but I was learning with a different intention. Um, but when I went to my master's program, there was a a blossoming that happened there because I really met kind of my uh, a tribe of what I would call magicians and misfits of people who were like me who were uh, exploring uh, we were in London England so we were exploring cities that we had never lived in um, and on this journey together and I remember really remarking at all the different avenues that they were exploring the city in and it really broadened and deepened my knowledge of areas I wouldn't have have gone to like I can remember um, you know things that I picked up from specific friends that I'm still interested in now or artists that I was introduced to or or you know um, so that was kind of one blossoming and then I kind of got when I got out finished the program and I graduated in the recession and kind of got back on the straight and narrow of like okay this is what I do next Um, it was there was another kind of moment in my I guess, I guess about 27 when I decided not to go to medical school, which was a, you know, getting in and then saying, you know what, I'm not, I don't think I'm actually cut out for this was actually, to be totally honest, one of the biggest factors was I am not a human that does well without sleep. And that is not a profession where you get long, deep hours of sleep pretty continuously. Um, right. Or consistent. And, and I, did a um, kind of a career profile test at the time. And what it actually unlocked for me is less about curiosity, I suppose, but more about creativity, because one of the areas that I came out really strong in was um, like artistic elements, and then the other one was language and like linguistics. Um, And I remember specifically with the artist um, kind of quality of that creativity, I remember saying to the guys he was sort of describing my results to me well actually I think you've got this wrong of like I don't paint I don't draw I don't play an instrument and the guy said to me but look at the way you're dressed and I'm willing to bet if I came to your apartment you'd be impeccably decorated and Mm. that was a moment where I realized I had lost that innate creativity that had been so prominent when I was a kid um, Mm -hmm. and had been kind of rewarded differently so that it was the start 
start of a journey. And I sort of tell this because it really leads to the, the, the most recent big reinvention, I suppose, of that um, reawakening of curiosity was in 2016, um, I was realizing that all of my friends were getting married and having kids and I was not at that point in my life journey um, and was feeling a little bit stilted of I had been leading a safer life. I had been doing the things that I was told I should do. I was, um, and so I kind of lost a little bit of that sense of adventure because I was going after other goals. And I joined the Think School of Creative Leadership. And that reawakened that, that, that learning. I would realized how much I'd actually been an ostrich with my head in the sand about what was going on um, in the world around me, technologies that were blossoming, different industries. Like I, I was working in the health sector at the time and so was like pretty deep in that world. But I had lost um, sort of the, uh, I guess that like renaissance trait of being like super interested in a lot of different things. And the exposure mm -hmm. I got to different ideas and constructs and um, the, the um, tremendous community I became part of, that I think that's what reignited my sense of curiosity because I realized, wow, I still know so little about the world. I mean, I know more than I thought I did um, and less than I think I do all at the same time. Um, and that, that was a, a change in path for me, that experience. I knew that I was um, sort of, uh, ready to move on from the specific work that I was doing at the time, but I didn't know what came next. And I had um, a wonderful um, mentor in that program who helped me kind of channel the not knowing into, in from a sense of not knowing into a sense of possibility and what was out there. Um, and I think that kind of reignited that sense of curiosity that has really been um, and a driving force probably in the last five or six years. Mm. I love that. And what it makes me think of is this idea that curiosity and many emotions are kind of contagious and that by finding your, your tribe or your magicians and misfits, you can really tease out and rekindle that spark that might have been um, dim for the, for the previous years. Absolutely. I think there's that the saying that says it's like you're the like byproduct of the five people you spend the most time with. Um, right. coming, so it's like, yeah, I think our communities are a huge part of how we evolve. And if you're with a group of uh, curious humans um, mm -hmm. like yourself, it becomes part of just how you see and experience the world. Yeah. Um, so on a, on a related note, we've talked in the past about a, a fear of being perceived as boring and how in some ways this has kind of been like a driving force in, I think, both of our lives. So could you maybe speak to that a little bit or where do you think it comes from? And what are some of the things that this fear has led you to try in recent memory? Okay. Yeah, I can absolutely tell you where it comes from. Uh, I've only discovered this probably in the last couple of years, but my dad, when we were kids, uh, when we would come up and say we were bored, he would say only boring people get bored. 
Um, mm. And I didn't realize how much I had internalized that. <laughs> um, but I think it is, in some ways, there's a there's a little bit of truth to it of people who are um, full of energy and imagination um, make make the world interesting, even if it's just celebrating the little moments while you have a cup of tea and the hummingbird goes whizzing by. Um, mm -hmm. So I think I think that that there's an element of of truth to it, but I think it's also it. Um, it's easy to get caught up in that every moment needs to be exciting or entertaining as opposed to recognizing mm -hmm. that boredom is actually a gift um, of when mm. your brain gets to wander off and and kind of muse on different thoughts or kind of um, kind of like do a little bit of reflection or even rumination on a on a topic as you kind of figure out what the path forward looks like. But it definitely um, it's kind of almost a principle that I live by of I've always, always trying new things. Um, that same personality test, uh, one of the things that I learned um, was that I had such a high need for feedback that I would be, mm. that I would never get that need met fully in a job environment, in a work environment, and so that I should mm. continue to take classes for the rest of my life. Because, like, essentially, learning is a feedback loop of like. You learn something and you see how you apply the knowledge and that like is its own internal kind of feedback loop that you get. Mm -hmm. um, so I have taken um, all sorts of different classes. The most recent thing that I have dove into, uh, pun intended, was springboard diving. <laughs> uh, so this, um, this past fall, after moving to Toronto and kind of being in the city for several months but really still feeling like a, a rock skimming the surface i i recognized that in order to feel like i was settling into toronto that i needed to find a way to make toronto unique in its own experience as opposed to comparing it to other places that i'd um, that i've lived and for me uh a lot of the activities that i've um that i've experimented with have communities or or like locations i suppose that they're attached to so i went you know did a, a big exploration into improv theater when i was uh, spending some time in new york I, I got you know a number of surfing hours under my belt when i was living in ireland the only choir that i ever want to be a part of is in london and so but even though i still like these activities i had specific communities that i really that's that's the spot that that activity came to life. And so when I got to Toronto, I sort of made a choice that instead of choosing one of these activities that had an association elsewhere, the best way for me to make Toronto special as the next place that I was living was to find something unique. And uh, I keep a, what I call an apocalypse. So it's the things I wanna do before the apocalypse comes. Um, uh, so uh, my version of a bucket list, um, and I was kind of flipping through it, and on there, I, at some point in time, I had made the claim that I wanted to be able to dive off of a three-meter diving board. So, um, so I looked for adult diving classes, and that's how I ended up um, in this weird and wacky uh, sport. But I think that apocalypse is my greatest antidote to becoming boring because 
uh, actually we had this conversation around when I was really in the being kind of gripped by that fear of being boring, especially now that I was back in a quote unquote grown up job with a stable, um, like stable location and a paycheck that was routine and all of that. Um, after a couple of years of adventuring, uh, it was a, that fear was alive and well. Um, and it was flipping through that list of if I continue to just chip away at the things on this list, it's actually impossible for me to become boring. Um, so that allayed <laughs> a little bit of that fear. <laughs> so yeah, so that's kind of how I got into springboard diving and how I, you know, how I use that list to keep myself um, both amused and entertained and kind of uh, tackling that fear. So right now while we're in quarantine and I'm not able to dive, um, I'm working on one of the other items on the list is practicing. I want to be able to do the moonwalk. Um, so I'm learning that. Um, <laughs> That's amazing. So the things on the list are big and small. You know, like uh, one mm -hmm. of the other ones that comes to mind is like read Lolita. I've never read it, but I feel like it's a big you know uh, book. Uh, so that's on there. I want mm -hmm. to um, go crabbing um, and actually kind of uh, flex my my wilderness muscles. Um, I also mm. want to go and do salsa classes in Cuba and pastry school in France. So there's like a whole range of things, things mm. that can be tackled in a single afternoon and things that will take uh, a little bit of a shakeup to my life. Mm. That's amazing. I, I absolutely love that. And something that comes up for me is um, this idea I've been thinking about how often society will kind of expect us to find one person who fulfills all of our needs and, and needs kind of just just kind of fills that hole and I think the same is true in work that we have this pressure to find this this one thing or this one job or this one career that meets all of those needs that we feel and I think that almost I, I feel like you do an exceptional job of demonstrating that you can have a job but then that doesn't have to meet all of these kind of creative needs and you can find other ways outside of work to to kind of fill that and I think that's that's such a powerful lesson for for people and it, and yeah, it, it, actually, it is it kind of goes against the grain in some ways I actually um I struggle with the whole idea of you know the the current sort of like career um kind of vernacular is find your passion or find your purpose it doesn't resonate for me as my wonderful friend Debbie says we live in the time that's the tyranny of the passion people um, and for me, it was quite liberating to find a community of people that were follow your curiosity. Um, and so that's kind of been my guiding principle. Of, um, does this seem interesting? And will I learn something? And if those two conditions are met, kind of nudging forward into those spaces and not always necessarily having to have the answers of why I'm doing something like like I don't necessarily know the end outcome but to sometimes toe into things just because there's there's a pull that's happening and I'm saying there's something there but I'm not sure what it is um I, th I think that's a it's a pretty it's, it's led me on some interesting journeys and and it's I call it collecting dots so sometimes you're out just exploring experiences and you're just gathering one dot at a time and it doesn't yet make a constellation but there's these moments where if you're patient enough, you realize how these unique experiences you've had, big and small, 
have actually set you up perfectly for some point that you didn't know would come. Um, and it, you know, and then probably at some point I'll like, I'll get all sort of like, um, meta on it and like the constellations will be constellations of each other. Um, but I, but I think it's allowing space for not knowing the answer. Um, and career wise, I think, um, uh, there's, um, kind of that idea that, that they, they need to be linear and more and more we're seeing the, the random collections of different experiences is what unleashes new opportunity. And so kind of, um, allowing ourselves to just dabble in things inside and outside of work. And sometimes they make these beautiful new intersections that you didn't know. You didn't know that that was like the X on the treasure mark or treasure map that you were looking for. Um, but you've, you've kind of just followed what, what has been um, kind of like what's, what's been appealing, what's been driving you and kind of just sinking your teeth into that without necessarily being goal oriented, that it has to lead somewhere, you know, coming back to diving for a second of, um, so diving started off as this way for me to make Toronto feel um, more like home. And then it took on sort of a, uh, a more jestful um, kind of angle. If I have sort of uh, friends who have kids um, back in Vancouver, and I thought, oh, wouldn't it be cool if I have like the sweetest anti moves ever when it comes to like pool season, like uncles, watch out, here I come. Um, and then it took on a philosophical level of I realized that I I do a lot of things that other people say require courage. I'm not sure they always feel courageous inside my own body. Um, and I was realizing that I needed to practice failing more to actually be bold and live on the edge of my comfort zone. So diving took on this philosophical level of my weekly failing practice because you get some very visceral mm. feedback um, when you <laughs> when you do it wrong. <laughs> mm, that's that's. Oh, I was I was just going to say that reminds me of um, I think one of the turning points for me was learning to surf when I was nineteen. And there's a there's a moment when you're kind of paddling and you're on the edge of the wave and you kind of have this choice of do I drop in and do I put all of my weight to the front of the board and really fall into this wave. And as you say, like, it is very much a failing practice and there is very visceral feedback that you get when it goes wrong. And, and I think that in many ways that was, it was like a way to flex that kind of courage muscle and to get used to putting yourself in, in situations. And gradually, as I imagine you would increase the height of the, of the diving board, I kind of got more comfortable with bigger and bigger waves. And you see, you get that like real time feedback that is just so, is so powerful. It's a, it's a great metaphor. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. You know, you, yeah. You increase the height of the diving board or the number of spins that you're going to do or whether you're facing forward or backwards when you leap off of it. So, um, and it's an interesting one because no matter how good you get at the sport, you continue to get a routine smackdown um, as you learn more and more <laughs> difficult things. And get I increasingly think painful, the, I'd imagine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but it's interesting because I think that you, know, as I think there's an expectation that as you get better at something, it's less painful. And this is a, one of those sports where 
as you get better at it, it's still equally painful, <laughs> um, which I think is a little bit of um, when we think about the goals that we have in life, as you get bigger and bolder uh, and kind of more kind of further along whatever journey you're on, whether it's um, a, a career path that you're wanting to take um, new new steps in or an artistic hobby or whatever it is, of there's an expectation that the risk might get smaller or the fear might get smaller as you get more kind of um, more expertise and more experience in it. But I actually think that might that might not be a, a true way of the way of the world. So I think allowing it to be big and scary, um, even even when you have a fair number of hours under your belt, and that's okay. And and to sit in that. It's kind of like being a performer and you still get stage fright even after all the years it's like that's a little bit of what tells you like oh, i'm alive it's uh I'm, I'm ramping up there's an energy building up for those big moments mm. yeah completely and go, going back to the the idea that you mentioned of collecting the dots along the way that's a concept that i really love and you mentioned that one of the um, one of the things on your apocalypse your apocalypse was improv, and I'm curious if that was one of the dots that led you to the work that you're doing now in facilitation, which is is one of the the topics that I kind of wanted to dive into in this conversation. Yeah, I would actually say it's one of the things that I've done to heighten my facilitation. I was kind of already on that path. Um, but I, I started to realize that um, facilitation is a giant game of improv. You know, you've set up a scene, you kind of have some characters in it, but you're not actually entirely certain what's going to happen. And so being able to respond nimbly and with a great deal of kind of, um, well, you need really strong listening skills and, and, and to be able to read the room all of those things are are the same sort of skills that you you foster in improv. So I would say it's something that I've done to augment what I do in facilitation and kind of lean in, as well as it, a lot of the improv games, they're, they're incredibly helpful um, sort of experiential learning activities to emphasize some of the points around our own need to have the answer or our, our discomfort with failing like there's just so many so many ways that you can actually apply improv to, to those journeys and and so I lean in a lot on those activities to to bring something to life and then use it actually as a do the activity and then debrief it um, mm. I love that and from a from a learning standpoint why do you think that facilitation is more effective than just regular lecturing or teaching and how would you for people who are kind of listening and not necessarily familiar with this world how would you describe some of the differences between more traditional teaching versus what you do as a facilitator yeah so as a facilitator i think that i sort of set the container but really the heavy lifting is done by the participants in the room i'm just there sort of as a coach, as an enabler, kind of shepherding a process along. So, um, so I think that's, I think uh, people who are in, in the teaching and training field would probably say something similar. And I think really expert teachers are also facilitators because we know that, um, so what we would refer to as experiential learning has a way, um, way deeper impact 
So how we structure this is if we you know, do an activity and then the learning comes when the participants tell me the answer in the reflection afterwards, as opposed to me telling you something. Um, like I might already sort of know the answer that I might be looking for, but if we do the activity and then you're reflecting on the experience and drawing your own conclusion, that, that sinks into people in a much different way than me telling you the exact same answer. Um, so I think a lot about that in terms of the way I design is we're often trying as facilitators to get, get something unstuck, to get it moving along to, and that might just be, you know, a new concept. It might be a new business model. It might be team alignment. There's any number of things you can use the skill for, but you're trying to have people have an experience and then learn how to apply it to move something forward. Um, it's always, it's always got a purpose to it. Um, at least if you design well, it's always got a purpose to it. Um, and I think that's one of the things that that is not only, I mean, it actually comes from a learning, learning sort of research, that idea of um, there's a great, um, what would I call it? It's a, it's a debrief model. So like if the reflection prompt that you would ask after an activity, you know, what questions first? So what did you observe? What was the experience like? And then, so what does it mean? So at helping them, like you're breadcrumbing essentially of like, you've now made some observations. Now you're looking for those like implications and like, how does it actually translate to the broader conversation we might be having? And then now what kind of catalyzing into like the action step. Um, and that actually comes from sort of ex uh, experiential learning literature. But I think that's where really great facilitators are so much of the work is actually not what happens in the room, but all of the design that goes behind the scenes ahead of time to make sure you've got the right questions, you've got activities that are going to have meaning and catalyze that learning. Um, and then what happens, we think of it as the time at the front of the room, and that's such a small portion of actually what really great facilitation looks like. Most of the most interesting and challenging part of it, actually, I think what happens before you even get to the front of the room. Mm. Hmm. I really love that. And it, it sounds to me like it, it's almost like a process of designing for inception and you're trying to kind of plant these seeds for people to have their own epiphanies and for these emergent conversations that you're kind of guiding and shepherding, but you're also not controlling. And it's, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting dance. Um, I, I guess building on what you've just been sharing, what do you think makes for both an exceptional facilitation experience? And secondly, if you were to if you were to design a curriculum for for teaching these skills of facilitation, both the in the front in the front of the room and the, the behind the scenes designing, what might be some of the things that you would include? Okay, when I think of a good facilitator, there's a couple of things that come to mind. This one's going to sound a bit trite, but remembering that you are not the hero of the story <laughs> is an important mm -hmm. one. Um, mm -hmm. You're just a supporting cast member. You're the, the Yoda who might be asking some, some questions and kind of, but really the journey and the adventure is for the participants. And so really keeping keeping them um, kind of top of mind as you think about about the experience you want them to have. 
or that they need to have. Um, the other one is listening. Um, it, you know, coming back to improv, if you don't listen to what's happening in the room, you're you're going to be tone deaf to what needs to happen. So watching the energy, watching the body language, how participants are contributing, gives you so many insights into what you, how you might need to shift and pivot. Like perhaps you've actually, um, the people you've been planning with, who are often the senior senior leaders, maybe don't have a sense of what's going on for their team. And so an energy might show up and you're like, actually, we've designed the wrong agenda. There's something else that needs to happen here. Um, but you only get that by listening to what's happening in the room and being really observant. And then there's that, um, the responding part of it, which is learning to be really adaptable of your, the best facilitators I know pivot um, on the fly seamlessly. You would never know that they are constantly, you know, it's like the Google, like recalculating route um, <laughs> all the time based on what's happening, but it, you don't, you don't see that. Um, they're, they're wanting, you know, they're managing time, they're managing energy, they're changing prompts to questions all in real time based on what's emerging in the room and what seems, you know, like where, where the outcomes are for the day are. When I think of the design part of it, that, that's a lot talking about what's happening in the room. The design part of it is about asking a lot of questions. I, when I start a design process with a new client, I actually give them a preamble at the beginning saying, I'm going to ask you a lot of questions and it's going to feel probably like you're being inundated, but I'm trying to get to the root or where we think the root of this problem is. Because oftentimes when people come, they're like, we need to design a session to do X. X is a symptom, not necessarily the root cause. And so for me, I'm, I'm usually using my facilitation skills to help teams solve problems of any sort of variety. But um, I think the best facilitators, when they're in the design process, they begin with the end in mind. So like, what, what is the purpose of the session? Why are we gathering now? And, and then what are the outcomes? What would it look like if we were wildly successful? Um, and naming those things as the North Star of how we design, because then once you know, when you know the purpose and the outcomes and the participants who are going to be in the room, then you start to design the process. And most people, when they're beginning sort of a facilitation plan or a workshop plan, they jump right into the process of like, we're going to open with a welcome, we're going to do this. Um, and so they kind of jump to that, but there's a whole bunch of context setting that really um, is useful to do ahead of time and sets you up for a much more rigorous design. Um, so that's, that's a big piece of it. And I think one of the areas in terms of like skills, um, thinking of it as an experience. Um, again, talking about we jump to the part where people are arriving in the room but it's actually a bigger story arc. Um, and we forget sort of the, we jump right to the middle and we forget that there's the part that is the, you know, the beginning of the story, the once upon a time where you're meeting the characters and they're finding out about stuff. Um, and so there's a model called the five E's of experience design that is really helpful for folks to help them broaden their aperture as they think about um, what they're designing. How do people, so the five E's are the first one is excite, how are people finding out about um, the session? 
um, you know, maybe it's an open session and you're leading a workshop and people can just, you know, find the link and sign up. Maybe it's their bosses telling them. Maybe they're just, you know, a whole bunch of ways. But how are people finding out about it? Um, uh, so that's the uh, excite. And then there's the enter. So that's the, that moment of crossing the threshold. Um, so when they're entering into the space, is there music playing? How are they greeted? Um, maybe it's um, if in the virtual world. What's it like the moment you press join meeting? I think we've we've we're missing a lot in that um, enter experience in our virtual world right now. Um, the next part is engage, which that's like the meat of your of your workshop or of your um, of your day, whatever session you're planning. That's where we like to jump to. the The next one is exit, and so that's that. What's the purposeful way of closing out the session? And then the final one is extend. And how do you kind of maintain contact? How do you kind of help remind them of what they've learned during the day at some point down in the future? How do you kind of monitor impact? Um, and when you're in the design process, if you think about that story arc and what kind of emotion you might want to or what your participants might be experiencing, so like, okay, when they first enter, maybe they're nervous because they're showing up to um, a workshop of something there that's a little outside their comfort zone, or they're not really sure why they're there, you can design um, more intentionally about how you address that and what you want them to experience. And so kind of holding that um, as part of the design process, so not just the activities. Uh, that's, I mean, those are, those are some of the, the, the frameworks and ways that I think about that, a really holistic design, remembering that you're designing for humans and humans are complex. They have multi senses that you want to engage. They have emotions that are going to be there and to think about them. Um, so that there's, you know, nothing in a really great workshop, nothing's happening by accident. You've thought through all of these different dimensions. And it's not to say that you have the exact plan that will go according to plan. There is that nimbleness and that fluid um, kind of component to great facilitation. But you've thought through so much of that that when unexpected things happen, you navigate it with grace. And if even if it's like the whole room is blowing up, it's knowing the you know which phrase you're gonna, I'm gonna pause here. I'm sensing that there's something going on in the room that I that we need to talk about. Like you can hold um, you can hold that heat because you've done really deep preparation and you can sit in that fire and kind of allow that that moment to be what it's going to be or you can say like hey i see the energy in the room is really low and we had this activity planned but we're going to actually pivot and we're going to do this to kind of like bring the energy back up the other piece that i lean a lot in my work is my undergraduate um is uh, degree is in neuroscience and so i look a lot at you know, cognitive biases and the way that our brain processes information as I'm designing. So that's something that thinking through where that shows up of, you know, a lot of workshops will do things like dot voting and recognizing that actually dot voting is a pretty easy way to get trapped into group think or to, you know, to, to, to vote for what your leader votes for because there's sort of that power, innate power structure. So that's another piece that I think it's, you know, really good design and facilitation is so, so rich and so deep and draws on so many elements 
that I almost feel like the, you know, like when people say like, what do you do? And I say, oh, I'm a facilitator. I feel like the word facilitator doesn't honor the depth of, of strategy and design that goes, that actually goes into the craft. Mm. Wow. I've been, I've been taking notes as you've been talking. This is, this is super interesting and, and really rich territory. And for me, thinking back, I just run two three hour workshops in the last couple of weeks and i think one of the big reflections for me is that just allowing more time for the the activities and the the conversations and the reflections and giving more space as opposed to my kind of default which i think is to try and cram it cram in as much useful information as possible um which upon reflection i think was really coming from maybe my my own insecurity and my own desire to be perceived as being intelligent and having something to share and that's definitely a big learning for me and maybe that ties back to what you're saying about being the yoda as opposed to being the hero of this of this workshop and and so so my question is what are some of what are some of the things that you see being done poorly by some facilitators or or maybe some of the common mistakes um or what what have you learned over the years of doing this work what have been some of the changes in the way that you hold space and that you facilitate um okay so the first one that comes to mind is not actually doing a thorough enough design process um so that's a big mistake of recognizing so like in my work when we are kind of estimating the sort of rough amount of time i say for every one hour of delivery of like time at the front of the room there's about eight to ten hours of prep that goes on behind the scenes so that would be the because that's what makes the in-person stuff go more smoothly now, when I think of the actual in-person stuff, one of the big ones um, is around um, how much a facilitator talks, especially when they're asking questions. Um, so oftentimes you ask that, that prompting question and then there's that awkward silence and you have to get, you have to fall in love with the awkward silence because the, the especially when you're, when you're beginning your facilitation journey, it's nerve wracking. And remembering that, you know, there's a, there's a tool that I teach new facilitators and it's called wait. And so once you've asked a question then you count in your head, why am I talking? And then if no one's talked, then you can do a secondary prompt. But typically what happens is people panic and they, they have like their first prompt and then they have a second prompt and then like, cause they're nervous and you're actually just you need to give, you need to hold space more than you need to have the answers. Um, one of the other ones when you're asking questions is to ask open-ended questions. I think a lot of times we, especially there's, there's a, an interesting dynamic that happens when you're facilitating a workshop where you are the content expert. And that's a unique, like there's kind of two elements. A lot of times I'm facilitating stuff where I'm not the content expert. So it's actually easier for me because I ask dumb questions all the time because I don't know and I'm not expected to know. It's, it's, it's a different experience when you're leading a workshop where you, you are kind of there at the front of the room because you have expertise to share and you almost have to check yourself in a different way because it's easier to ask leading questions. You know, have you considered da 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 da? That's actually just advice in disguise. It's not actually a deep, question that is allowing them um, for them to like come to the conclusion so the way we ask questions and the comfort with the 
the silence that follows afterwards. Um, you talked, mentioned, touched on a little bit on timing. I would say that that's a, a really easy one that even now with it, um, I've been probably facilitating different types of things for uh, over 10 years. I still, when I'm doing the first draft of my facilitation plan, I, I still try and put too much in because the spaciousness in a, in a, in a plan almost feels uncomfortable. Like, oh, is that enough stuff? Is it going to be worthwhile if I only do three activities instead of five activities? Um, but you then often rush through, rush through the kind of like the meaty bits because you're like driving to the next part of the agenda. Um, oh, I had a thought and it just went out of my head. What was that? That's a good one too. Um, it'll come back. Uh, so that's that's a sort of an an interesting piece around getting getting the right the timing cadence um so that the actual activities aren't rushed oh i remember what it was another one that is really big is practice your instructions instruction giving is so important in a workshop and oftentimes when we're writing our plans we don't actually like write the messaging as crystal clear as we might like it to it doesn't have to be a script that you like memorize but you actually want to talk about like, what's the, why are we doing this activity? What does it look like? Kind of, and make sure that your instructions are really clear because you'll, you'll get a pretty good read pretty quickly of the, like the weird scrunched up faces of your participants when they're not exactly sure what they are expected to do. Um, and so that's, that's, that's a, it's a fine art to get the language so that it doesn't feel like you're talking down to people, but that it's so clear um that they're like okay yeah i know why we're doing this and how to do it and what's expected of me um so that's another one where learning that um and the other one that i think is really important from a like a an oral presentation style is what's your ramp so how do you ramp into an activity and so thinking through kind of in that journey of like how do you you know you're you're going to do an activity but how do you lead into it as opposed to just jumping straight into the instructions. Um, so is it a story? Is it a question? There's a whole bunch of different ways you can you can ramp different activities. Um, and I think that's that's what makes it feel seamless from one to the other. How do you take the debrief of the previous activity and then you do this sense like this gentle weaving of a new thread into the next one? And that's what gives that's what makes a, a workshop feel like this really cohesive experience as opposed to like a clunky chunky of like, I had this activity, I had this activity and I had this activity is three discrete things as opposed to there's a momentum that built from the first activity into the next one and then the energy transformed into the third one. And you're kind of like, um, you're, you're playing with that, that story arc. Um, so those are all, I mean, those all sound like very, very fluffy. Um, but I would say learning how to facilitate is, is something you have to really learn by doing. I had the great privilege of working um, alongside a number of great facilitators. And that's how, like, I still have phrases that I use that I know the person I was like, oh, you know, Margaret, she used to, she was the one who said, I'm going to pause here. And like, I remember watching her and going, oh, that's a, like a real stealth move of like, that's how she, in a very gentle, soft way, 
reclaim the energy in the room and finding your facilitation style of some people are very energetic and that works for them some people are much more soft and subdued and they kind of um they have almost like a a silent presence at the front of the room and finding what style works for you and kind of finding your own facilitation personality is a, an important part of it and the best way to get exposure to that is to to watch other other people who are really great at it and like when I now attend workshops um, of any topic I'm more often than not half of my notebook is little facilitation things that I thought they did really well and then the other half is like all the notes around like whatever the content was of the workshop um, this also made me a terrible workshop attendee because I'm uh, super critical. I'm like, oh, well, I would have done da 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 da, um, which is like a professional hazard. Um, but I think it's a great way to to do some reflection on what you do well and what you don't. I would say it's a nut because it's you get feedback from your participants, but as you're learning and growing in this area, um, I, I think shadowing it or co-facilitating is another really strong tool that we don't make as much use of as we could we can. So I remember someone told me that the note taker is the most powerful person in the room. And this was at a time in my career where I was like low on the totem pole and so I was doing a lot of the note taking and I was sort of um, finding it a begrudging task. And they said, you get to capture the way that this is recorded, you're kind of bearing witness to. And so I, and she said, and you get to be in the room with all these people at the top of their game, watch and learn from them. And I, and so it shifted for me the way I thought about, um, I thought about note taking at the time. And I think a little bit about the same way about co-facilitating now. Um, co-facilitation, A, allows you to like share the responsibility at the front of the room so that if you momentarily drift off, someone else was like listening in that moment and can kind of respond to the where things went or you can have a it's it's pretty requires a lot of energy to be um, a workshop um, kind of host and kind of holding that uh, container and so when you have a co-facilitator and you're like taking turns running different activities I think it's good for overall energy management and it also gives you that opportunity to watch other styles and learn from them and then do a, did a bit of a what we would call sort of like reflective practice of debriefing what you do well and what you don't do well as a facilitator with someone else who is in the craft because some of your participants might give you feedback of like we'd like more breaks or we would you know the instructions weren't clear some of that sort of thing and hopefully you do a, a survey at the end so you're getting that feedback from them but to get the feedback from someone else who is also uh, like a practitioner they're going to have a different level of insight of did you know that you usually face the left side of the room? Did you know that, um, you know, that like just things that they kind of uh, observe um, that that participants are not going to be aware of? Um, I remember my first, I'd been facilitating for a number of years and I did a facilitation training program. It was the first sort of like formal facilitation um, and it was the alchemy of group facilitation. And we did a set of demos and sort of like um, kind of actually like practicing little moments and the one that stood out to me most that I still remember today was when the you did an activity where you had five participants and everyone else was kind of like witnessing and then one person who was acting as the facilitator for the discussion and 
each one of the participants was given a role of like a different type of challenging behavior. And in this case, they'd given someone who was like silent and withdrawn and kind of checked out, but they had specifically placed that person over the back shoulder of the, the facilitator. And so when you're writing stuff up on the board, typically your writing hand is the hand that you will lift off the board and that's the direction you will turn to face the participants. And, and they, and I remember like the moral of the story was, make sure that you're turning around to face all participants so that no one's kind of in your blind spot. Um, and that's something that I wouldn't have, until we sort of did it and someone reflected back to me, I never really thought about the fact that there was this blind spot that maybe I wasn't paying attention to or engaging as deeply. Um, and so how do I be more egalitarian with, um, with my energy and attention as, as I was kind of guiding the conversation? Similarly, it's like, how do you manage the over-contributors who have their hand up at every possible moment and, and over-share? Mm. Wow, you're painting such a, such a rich picture. And I, I feel like I've stepped into this world relatively recently. And I, I certainly have had my own learning moments of facilitating both in person and, and virtually. And I, I, I can remember for me that having a kind of co-facilitator who had a very different energy to me, she was much more, I'd say, kind of higher energy and maybe louder and slightly more aggressive. And I feel like that paired quite well with, with the way that I tended to, to lead the space. Um, but what I'm interested in, and this kind of goes back to some of our early conversation, is what are some of the ways that you feel like you may have grown as a person since embracing this work as a facilitator because it, it sounds to me from what you're describing that a lot of these a lot of these skills for becoming a, a gifted facilitator are also there's a lot of overlap with real life I would imagine so I'm, I'm curious what ways do you think you've grown um, as you've been exploring this space I definitely have to remember not to be a know-it-all <laughs> That's uh, that's personally and professionally. <laughs> uh -huh. um, and so reminding myself, especially when I'm in um, in content areas where I know something about it, is of reminding myself that in those specific moments, it's, it's not about me. Um, and to make sure that even though I want to tell them the answer because I know something and I want to contribute, um, it's actually about the, the learning and reflections that the group has even if that's different um, from what I think um, it has it's taught me a lot about group dynamics and so kind of circling back to what I was curious about and continue to be curious about around how people see and engage with the world I am now so attentive to those dynamics because I spend so much time designing and, and paying attention to them in my professional world of thinking through how does this space convey meaning? If I stand here, if the, you know, so I think I never thought about, well, quite honestly, if you had told me in high school that I would spend a fair bit of my time at the front of the room, I would have told you to get out of town. Um, I, I didn't, I, I, I did a little bit of sort of acting and dancing. So I was on the stage, but I, I didn't really like being on the stage as myself. 
which is a, an interesting nuance about facilitation. Like you're, you're kind of in a persona, but you're up there as yourself as well. I can remember actually a, a high school assembly where I got up to make an announcement and was sort of nervous about it. It was like something benign of like, remember on Wednesday, there's a meeting for such and such. Um, and at the end of it, as I was hopping off the stage, I went, thanks a lot, bye. Like I would if I were leaving a voicemail on someone's phone and the whole <laughs> auditorium burst out laughing. And I didn't, it wasn't until I sat down and I like replayed what had happened. Like, oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> so as a kid, I did not enjoy public speaking. Uh, so I never would have believed you if I had, if you had told me that that's what I would, um, what I would end up, up uh, end up doing. Um, but I think it also channels into, I have a, a deep need for belonging when I'm in groups. And I actually find groups quite, um, quite anxious when I'm not in a facilitator role. Not, I'm not overly so. I've got, a, I've got, I've built, I've built some really strong skills and I'm, I, I now see my role in those scenarios of if I can make others feel most comfortable, that makes me feel comfortable and it brings the whole anxiety of the room down, even when I'm not in the formal facilitator role. But I think it's what's made me good at my job is my desire to build that community feeling to, to make myself feel like I belong. And it's, and it's, it's an easy way to put, to give myself meaning in a group is the facilitator has a role. It doesn't need to be the star of the show, but I have a clear role. And I think that parallels in my life of the thing that is my greatest Achilles heel is also now my strength because I designed for the the anxious group member of I design, like when I think of mm. some of the the other things I dabble in outside of my like professional life around community building. I assume that you also hate networking and, and that you feel uncomfortable like doing the cold approach, like, hi, I'm so-and-so, let's chat. Um, and so I take kind of in a gestural way, take all of those things and give voice to the, that experience because I live it so strongly um, to say like, I'm now going to, I'm now going to flip that on its head because I'm taking that in as a piece of information into the process. So I think, the level, that sort of awkwardness that I really experienced as a teenager with groups and fitting in is a, actually a great catalyst for the way I approach designing um, facilitation. So it's sort of, it's a, it's a dance between things that, things that were kind of not, not gifts, things that were just actually clunky moments and, and this kind of skill set of where because of who I am, and how I experience the world, it gives me a certain lens on how I design, and the skill set of kind of designing and building um, kind of group dynamics allows me now to show up in my life differently. Of I can cold approach anyone now because I I take the the idea that you are probably feeling as awkward about this as I am, and so I'm going to make us both feel less awkward because I now have given myself permission to approach you to make you feel less awkward. So I have a purpose and you are now grateful because I've started talking to you. Um, uh, but I even now, like sometimes when I'm getting ready for a session, I'm in anxious party house mode of like, you know, the, the, the screens are all ready. I've got the chair set up how I want. And I'm thinking about dynamics and, you know, kind of the room and how it kind of conveys the, the tone I want it to. But sometimes when those first participants arrive, 
I have to remind myself, this is not um, like a cocktail party or a networking event and you're kind of feeling awkward. You, you have the ability to make this feel like the most warm and welcoming experience. But I forget every now and then and I have to remind myself to be brave and like I have to do the cold approach because they're not going to cold approach me necessarily. We're not on an equal footing here. Um, my, my, part of my role is to make them feel really um, well received as they're entering into this space as you know, coming back to that, that enter moment of the five E's of like, how do I, how do I own that? But it's actually driven a lot from my own kind of like the swirly feelings that I get on the inside in moments of um, where I'm kind of outside my element of remembering that that feeling when I'm, when I'm leading a session. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Um, so one, one last question on this thread of facilitation. Um, we're obviously living in time of quarantine and COVID and there's a lot of people turning to Zoom and similar platforms for teaching online workshops. And I'm curious if you think that the virtual workshop experience has the potential to, to replicate one of being in person. And either way, what would be some of the advice that you'd share for someone, maybe with experience leading workshops um, in, in a physical space to going virtual with Zoom? Oh, I have so many. Um... So can it replicate it? No, because replication is an exact copy of, uh, if you look at the origin. So it can't replicate it. Can it still be a powerful and meaningful experience? Absolutely. Um, But you just have to design a bit differently. Um, So everything online runs at about 75% of regular speed. So things just take longer. Um, You know, you have to think about what pieces of your, like especially if you're delivering content as part of your workshop, what pieces need to be um, done together as a group and what things can be done, I would say like asynchronously out on participants' own time. So if, um, because, because you often have to run shorter workshops um, when you do virtual because otherwise you get like Zoom fatigue, thinking through what pieces of this can be delivered beforehand, what can you even integrate it if it's going to be a separate time of we're now going to take a half an hour break for us all to read this article. We're going to close off our cameras. You're going to set your timers and you're going to go find a spot in nature to read this. Or um, we assume that it has to be only in front of the um, only in front of like the, the computer to be a meaningful virtual workshop. And I think there's really creative ways to to engage people that is a bit more of an ebb and flow it all depends on what obviously that you're leading i think we forget a lot about that entrance moment virtually you know if you think about an in-person space they have the moment where they're showing up they're walking through the door they're looking for the sign that tells them to which room they're going to there's a whole versus when you're joining virtually it happens in a press of the button and so you actually need to allow more mental arrival time because they haven't had that moment where they transition from whatever they were doing before, you know, as they physically walk through space, it buys them a little bit of time to arrive in that moment of whatever the next thing is. Um, I would say there's also a, um, especially with a lot of the like um, design thinking and like workshop workshops, um, a desire to go like high tech of thinking like, well, now that we're virtual, we must add more technology. 
And I think we need to actually prioritize a level of humanness in it of, you know, yes, Zoom has a feature where I can give you a thumbs up, um, like like a, a little icon. But it's for me, it's much more powerful if we all have our videos on and I say, can you give me two thumbs up if you can hear me? Um, where we're actually still engaging as humans and still, you know, kind of reading each other's faces and using some of that. So I think there's a lot of ways to use the tools that help kind of fill in some of the gaps around around body language or what you're seeing uh, on the screen and how you interact with it, as well as how you just you just have to design differently in terms of the pacing of activities, the instructions that you give. I think. Um, remembering that you need to honor different learning styles um, and we you know having the instructions verbally as well as written up and so kind of some of that multimodal best practices in learning design as well as remembering that you have five senses and how can you integrate the five senses into a virtual experience which is very dominant on visual but maybe it's the the energizers or icebreaker activities you do can have a different element of you know, bringing in something that is physical or kinesthetic of one of my um, uh, ones that you it's like you're tossing a ball a virtual ball to the different different folks as you're doing your introduction so there's ways to kind of bring bring all those other senses and experiences into it that we're just starting to to challenge our our assumptions around what we think virtual means and how to actually make it meaningful and still really productive. I think we now, a lot of us have experience with like Zoom meetings, like virtual meetings, but the idea of a virtual workshop is a, I think just at the infancy of what's possible as we think about how do you, how do you design it for a, a whole human experience, not just the eyeballs. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, that's that's a that's a great answer. Um, and it's yeah, it's definitely been a very steep learning curve for me as well. And even just listening to you now, thinking about the entry for the workshop that I did yesterday, and realizing that it, we were just kind of ten people looking at our cameras and simple things like playing music when people people entered, and just being more deliberate and intentional about that experience. I think is yeah, there's definite room for, for improvement for sure. Well, I think we have to remember, like, so I now. So in, in person, you have that moment where you come in and then you often like you kick off the workshop and then you do the icebreaker activity. I now have almost two. I have what they're like welcome activity, the thing that's going on because like people are trickling in at different rates and otherwise you're doing that sort of like awkward small talk. Um, so I have a couple of different digital tools that I use or something that you can be doing everyone at their own different arrival moments, but it's just allowing something for, so one of the workshops I did recently, we did a little bit of trivia just as people were trickling in. Um, and so like a way that it, it's not sort of that awkward, we're all just staring at our screens waiting for this, the workshop to begin. Similarly, you can think of like, it, it, especially in Zoom, there's a waiting room feature. If you want to like, you know, not allow people to trickle in, but to have like the one moment where you like flip on the switch and everyone enters the room at the same time. A little, not my preference, but, um, I like that time to to warm up and welcome people and and thinking of you know even just like how loud is the music so you can still talk over it and still have a conversation as you're welcoming people, um, and similarly thinking about the exit because and this goes back to my my kind of nudge around learning at the end of workshops is we want to gather that participant 
um, that, that feedback from them saying like, what did they like and what could be improved? You have to put it at the right spot at the closing because unlike a physical space where you can corner people and say, please fill out my survey, um, they can just like um, disappear from the room at any moment. So once you've said, okay, we're wrapping up now, I now have learned to put my, my feedback survey before the closing remarks because there's, they're, like it's not formally ended yet. So thinking of the feedback more inside the like the bounds of the workshop as opposed to the workshop has ended and now we do feedback um so there's lots of little i have a whole host of things um that are like that very tactical level of tips of how do you actually um de design ever so slightly differently for a virtual experience to make sure that you're not missing out on moments like that even things like renaming yourself in Zoom and how do you use the whiteboard for collaborative drawing exercises? Like there's so much you can do. You just have to think of, um, I have a, a, another group of facilitators I'm involved with and it's amazing to see there's all these features in, in any technology that, you know, like the renaming feature is intended to be used to name yourself. But um, there's, a, there's an improv game called Namey Namey Pointy Pointy. Um, very, very, um, very serious, obviously. Um, but it's a great way to like bring people into that moment of focus. <laughs> uh, if we were on video, I'd make you play it. We can, we can record one and put it up with the podcast. Um, but it's a great activity to get people familiar with each other's names, especially if it's a group that doesn't all know each other. But if it's a group that does know each other, you can use the rename feature so that people can give each other nicknames. And so you still, you're still using the activity to bring people into the moment of like clear focus about we are here now and we are absolutely present and like what that means to not get distracted by your email. Um, but it's a way to use the rename feature in a totally different way. Mm -hmm. That's brilliant. I absolutely love that. And I'm definitely going to experiment with that. One of the things that I, I tried yesterday was doing a, a collaborative kind of app creation and everyone joined the same Google sheet and there were kind of a series of questions in there. And it was interesting just seeing people typing their answers in real time and this, that we were kind of making this app in the space of about 20 minutes. And that would have been hard to do in a in, in person um, situation. So it's, there's, there's definitely some advantages to being virtual. And I think, as you say, we're just in the really early stages of figuring this out. Um, so finally, last kind of question is, I guess, a bit more meta, but what are some of the questions that are alive for you in this world of facilitation? And what are the things that you're, you're trying to figure out? And where do you see this evolving and, and growing into? One that's really alive for me right now is how do I continue to help building the capacity of others um, in this area? Because I think it's that uh, the rising tide lifts all ships mentality of, I, I believe facilitation is a superpower. And it's just, I think it's, it's kind of at this tipping point of people are realizing just how strategic the skill set is around the asking deep questions and kind of the design and the like, understanding groups and the ability to drop into any conversation, even if you're not a topic expert, there's something unique about facilitation in that. And I want to see more people do it really, really well, because I think there's a, and I don't mean like professionalism in the sense of like more associations, but I just want to see 
the craft at its like top of its game. So for me, thinking especially with this transition to virtual, how do we get more people doing it really well and pushing our thinking about what's possible in it is one that's um, really alive for me because I've had the opportunity to through a whole bunch of different side projects that I'm involved in kind of have my own I I'm the first person to acknowledge when my work went entirely remote a couple of months ago I'd done some virtual facilitation before um, but I was like oh it's just not going to be as good and I watched it was actually watching two of my improv teachers in New York who were doing a they have a regular Sunday night slot that they always do at the Magnet Theater and they did uh, an online virtual improv and I went holy smokes if you guys are adapting to do virtual improv I need to get over myself and figure out how do I make this great um, it's yes it's not going to be the same but how do I make this um, this have that same level of power and um, kind of just like that that flair that we that facilitators kind of that I felt like I'd been robbed of a superpower um, at first. And then I said, oh, I got to reframe this. Like, this is just a chance to develop some new superpowers. So I want to help others um, kind of get to the top of scope in, in facilitation, both in person, because I think it's still a lot to grow in that and understanding the nuances, but also in our virtual world so that people are, the thing that they want to share with the world is being done so in the most impactful way possible. So that's alive and well. That's a facilitation question. I don't know if I have other. That's the that's the big one for me right now. Mm -hmm. That's great. I I absolutely love that. Um, so I'm gonna kind of wrap this up with three relatively rapid fire questions. Your answers don't necessarily have to be rapid at all. Um, the first one is uh, what else is on your apocalypse that you're considering picking up. In the, in the near future? Um, I am going to, I mean, I have to pick ones that don't require travel. Um, so right now, as I mentioned, um, Mastering the Moonwalk is big there. Because I'm in the wilderness, I would like to learn how to gut a fish. Um, so that is on my list. Um, and um, making Swedish uh, cardamom buns is also on the list for kind of like the very near term future. Um, I think I'm going with like survival skills oriented ones <laughs> at this particular moment. Um, kind of more broadly in terms of, title. yeah, what well, more broadly kind of working, I think there's one that hasn't quite been named on there, but actually, no, I think it is. There is, for me, one of the items is to host a workshop under my own name. And that's where it's an intersection of what I do professionally. I am usually a support system to someone else's content or someone else's like the thing they want to put in the world. And I need to figure out what's the thing I want to put into the world and kind of um, channel my, my own um, kind of strength and courage that I apply to other things to this one even though I can totally feel the like fear of failing of like, well, I don't have anything to say. What would I do it about? I'm always just kind of like helping other people with their thing. So I think uh, that would be another one on the apocalypse of, which seems so, I mean, like so silly that as a facilitator, I'm like, can't figure out what, what 
I would host a workshop uh, in, in my own name versus under someone else's umbrella. So that, that's one I gotta, I gotta tackle head on. <laughs> well, well, based on the last hour or so of conversation, I would imagine if you were to create a, a workshop workshop for aspiring facilitators, um, I mean, I, I would attend for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that, that would be a great, a great starting point. Um, so second rapid fire question, uh, how are you staying sane amidst the, the shelter in place and the lockdown? And what are some of the boundaries or rituals that you've put in place that have helped with keeping mental sanity? Well, I have been incredibly lucky to be up uh, in the wilderness in my family cabin when I was in um, on vacation when everything went remote uh, in British Columbia and then made the decision to stay instead of heading back to Toronto. So I have had um, a, the, a, a really unique experience of, of the lockdown because I'm actually in total denial that it's happening. My family cabin is at the end of the end of the end of the road. And I don't see other people up here because it's, uh, there aren't really other people up here. Um, so to keep myself sane, it's probably been less about managing kind of COVID and like the, like the, the lockdown from that side, more about managing boundaries around energy of, with everything moving to online, there's this, um, there's like a sameness to everything. So things that used to be different of like work had one experience and then my volunteering had a different experience. And then, um, so some of the side projects I'm involved in all had different rhythms and skill sets that they were drawing on. They now feel very samey and, uh, even social quality, like hanging out with friends, it's all kind of the same. And I've, had to put um, some guidelines on how much I participate. Specifically, actually, it's probably been mostly in social categories of some of these other ones are non-negotiables of like I've made a commitment and I'm going to honor that. Um, and I have tried to make you know one day of the weekend screen free um, because now that everything's on a screen, it's not even. Like I, I opt in and out for different types of activities in my life. It's just everything is there. So that, that's, that's probably the big one. Otherwise, I'm probably mostly, mostly the same, which is a weird statement. I've got, now I've got to go think about what I'm, I, the other one is to let go of this idea that I'm going to have this magic epiphany, write a book, learn how to make sourdough bread, like all of that, like um, this is not, uh, this is like living life in quarantine. This is not like my best life moment um, or I don't have to expect it to be. Maybe some people are having that, but this is like get through this um, and figure out how to slow down. I think for me, uh, I have a, a particular habit of kind of, I, it's like I'm all or nothing on a lot of things and it's easy for me to overcommit because I want to be helpful and I, 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 I want I want to be known as generous. It's a, a value I hold dearly, but it means that I sometimes don't hold boundaries as clearly as I need to, um, especially around uh, around energy or timing. And so, um, kind of keeping that in mind um, as I as I think about how to honor the slowing downness that is um, granted to us right now. 
uh, in this in this weird weird world that we're living in amen yeah um what is one piece of advice that you would give to yourself five years ago um what would i give to myself i think it's the one that hmm, what would i give to myself five years ago i think it's it's okay to still not know what you're gonna be when you grow up <laughs> um, <laughs> that's great <laughs> does that yeah. still apply or <laughs> i think so i think so i think there's this uh, for for a lot of people you do there are professions where you get to a particular state and i have had to recognize that i will continue to evolve and change and the thing that i do now for work is probably going to be different i think i'm starting to get some level of consistency in terms of like skills and strengths and just applying them in different ways but that idea of that uh, of arrival as a finished point career-wise, I don't think will be one that resonates for me because I value reinvention and change and learning. And part of that necessitates continual um, like shifting and, and playing in, in new career, new career spaces. Um, and I, so that's, and, and so for me with the, the, even when it comes down to like choosing what thing to put into the world around um, like a workshop, I get caught up in the singularity of that of like, well, then I'll be known for X, which as someone who is interested in so many things to close that window and focus in gives me a great deal of anxiety. Um, but I think there's, I get inspired by folks like Tina Roth Eisenberg, who um, started Creative Mornings and and has a co-working space and a tattoo company and an app that are saying there can be a common thread and to look for that, but I don't have to buy into the mindset that I'm only one thing and if I do that really well, I can't do other things. Yeah, completely. And I, I fully resonate with that. And I mean, Curious Humans is about as vague as you can get. But I think that there is something satisfying about having an umbrella under which you can put all of your experiments and all of your kind of creative projects. Um, yeah. So on that note, where would be a good place for listeners to potentially find out more about what you're up to on the Internet and maybe learn about one of these workshops that you're intending to host in the not too distant future? In the not too distant future, um, probably, I mean, there's two, Instagram, I should really get more active on Instagram again. I, when I transitioned back to my grown-up life, it no longer felt as compelling, but that's an, that's an easy one, Andy underscore uh, on adventure, or there's two underscores in between the words, um, and um, you know, obviously LinkedIn uh, is an easy one, and then andycuttington.com um, is the sort of my my most central home on the internet. Nice. Okay. I'd like to close with this uh, Rilke line that is try to love the questions themselves and live them now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live your way into the answer. So with that in mind, what is the question that you're living yourself right now? And what question might you leave our listeners with? Hmm. What question am I living right now? I'm 
living the question of what are you so afraid of? What's the worst that could happen if you actually put skin in the game um, as opposed to being an observer on some of these things? And just doing a little bit of exploration uh, into, into that area of uncertainty of feeling like um, if you think of the hero's journey, I can feel kind of the tingling in my toes of the next call to adventure. And so I'm in the next phase of collecting dots. So perhaps the question I will leave folks with is along that same, uh, same vein. What dots are you collecting that maybe don't make sense right now? What kind of, what are you putting into, into your basket? Mm, beautiful. And we will wrap the show with that. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure to have a, a lovely rambling, weaving conversation. All right, take care. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give Curious Humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y dot life.